In about a week, five teams of hackers at DEF CON 31 will have a chance to hack a real satellite orbiting the Earth. It's a capture the flag competition unlike any that's been held before. And I've talked about it a lot. It's called Hackasat. And in episodes 1, 2, 18, and 19, I interview the people that are involved with making it happen. I think it's a big deal. And even if you're not at DEF CON, you can still follow along on YouTube and other social media. The Hackasat competition wouldn't be possible without a dedicated satellite in orbit. It's called Moonlighter. But it also wouldn't be feasible without the necessary encryption to send and receive messages to Moonlighter. Imagine the disappointment if somebody hacked into the Hackasat competition and stole the keys and locked the players out of the game entirely. Well, that won't happen. But the idea of someone hacking a satellite and stealing the encryption keys, that was suggested by Mike Walker in episode 18. So shortly after that episode, I sought out somebody who could maybe talk to me about what's being done to secure satellites that are already in orbit. I mean, you can't really go up to them and fix them. They're in orbit. Well, along the way, I found someone who's going a step further than that. He's actually thinking about the advent of quantum computing and how that will be able to render today's encryption vulnerable to new types of attacks. Again, once a satellite is launched, we're already 100 miles above the Earth or more. And it's not like we can do a spacewalk and fix the chips on board with a new encryption. No. Even if that was possible, we're not going to do that to the hundreds of thousands of satellites already in space today. Satellites that we depend on from everything from our mobile phones to our electric vehicles to our healthcare systems. This is the story of how to protect sensitive communications with satellites in orbit today and tomorrow using quantum cryptography. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. Skip Sanzeri, Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of QSecure. QSecure develops post-quantum cryptography it's advanced cryptography that is designed to prevent quantum computing attacks, but also is appropriate for today's attacks. So it works both now and later. Some of you may remember Skip. He was on a previous episode of Error Code, episode four, where he talked about quantum computing in general. Well, in this episode, we're going to focus on quantum cryptography. And I asked him to explain the difference. Absolutely. So quantum cryptography is a set of new algorithms that are designed to prevent a quantum computing attack. So quantum computers are new types of computers and these, these operate differently than our standard zeros and ones. So if you think of the computers we use today, most people are familiar that they use a binary format, a zero or a one, and that's used to, to program and, and provide results. And those computers have worked for us all the way from you know, our phones to laptops to servers to supercomputers. It's all the same format. Um, quantum computers use subatomic properties, and these now give them ways of computing that, that uncertain problem sets they're very, very good at. Things as, such as multivariate problems. Think of um, aerospace design, how you design you know, planes and wings and to, to be effective and, and good. Uh, protein folding, materials science and chemistry, logistics and optimization, weather prediction. 
Uh, AI, let's talk about AI. These are multivariate problems where if you can handle a lot of variables, then you're going to be able to really execute on those problem sets. The problem right now though, is that our zeros and ones are not that good at multivariate problems. One of the multivariate problems, uh, it happens to revolve around our cybersecurity that we use today. So we use factoring today, uh, which is just uh, factoring a large number, two, two factors going to a large number. But that's the basis for the world's computing on the public key side, which is the internet, anything you use on the internet. Quantum computers can be very good at attacking that. So is there a major difference between, say, what Microsoft is pursuing in quantum computing versus what everybody else is pursuing in quantum computing? Microsoft went after a topological qubit. I think it was the Marajana, and that uh, still has yet to be uh, found from what I understand. So, um, But there is, people are saying, oh, it could be here. But nonetheless, um, it's all it's all good because we don't know which one of those systems will win. Uh, but I have a feeling there'll be a few different types of quantum computers used for different uh, applications. So if you have quantum computers, you can get to quantum cryptography, which with AI crunches through a lot of different possibilities in a really short amount of time. So the encryption we use today, which is largely based on factoring large prime numbers, it could become trivial to hack. So post-quantum cryptography, uh, or sometimes called quantum resilient cryptography, sometimes called quantum safe cryptography, is new algorithms. Now, these are classical algorithms, so they're still based on zeros and ones, but they don't use factoring. They use things like, there's a lot of really you know broad terms like lattice infrastructure and for, for where they hide a key in a 400-dimensional lattice, and there's a lot of the math that goes into it. Cryptography is a very interesting field. But NIST, our National Institute of Standards and Technology, have finalized on four new algorithms that are designed to future-proof us from quantum attacks. And I'm going to add in now AI attacks. And so that's what quantum cryptography is. Quantum computing, on the other hand, are these computers that are used to use great applications. But the reason we need the quantum cryptography is because, with as with all technologies, Rob, they're going to be used for bad purposes, maybe even before they're used for good. And quantum computers are being built right now to weaponize and decrypt all of this great information that we all rely on today. So Skip mentioned Lattice being different from cryptography that's being used today. I'm thinking like elliptical curve cryptography, which we do use today, where you've got a curve and then you take very specific points along that curve well, the lattice, then that would be even more complex and that you could still take a very specific point within that lattice, but there would be too many variables to consider. Perhaps not even quantum computers would be able to crunch through them in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, the, the way that it's been described to me, and I uh, came into quantum as, as not a quantum person, but when I think of the mathematics, it's beyond my capability. But the way it's been explained to me is as if you had a 400 dimension infrastructure. Now we, you know, are just worrying about three dimensions in time, right? In our human world, but somehow mathematically they can create 400 dimensions. Then they hide the key somewhere in those 400 dimensions. That is a difficult problem for quantum computers to solve. Even they can't get through that. So that's one of the infrastructures and, um, the, according to NIST, that one is one of the stronger candidates for finalization. 
The language learning models, or what some people call artificial intelligence, it can perform very mundane tasks. So I wondered if AI like that is starting to introduce a wrinkle into cryptography today. Yeah, AI. I'm very, very scared of AI right now. I'm on that side of we really got to take a look at this. So you may have seen just in the past couple of days. Well, first of all, let me back up. We all know now that AI and machine learning have, at least in the public eye, rapidly uh, increased and, and are are now well known thanks to Chat GPT and large language models, right? And these are the ones that we've all seen where you can give it almost any query and it will literally give you back information that you could have not gotten before that easily anywhere. Um, and so AI itself now is being used by the public, right? Because we all, I, mean, I think uh, ChatGPT had a billion users to the OpenAI site, uh, fastest growth of anything ever um, in technology. Um, but if you think about that, so you've got what happened in just the past few days, it was announced that the hackers have developed their own GPT. They call it Worm GPT. So now, and they're overtly saying, we now are going to use this to hack you guys. It's, it's literally on a website. So uh, it didn't take long. It just didn't take any time before the bad guys are starting to use this stuff. So what's going to happen if you think about AI, um, you've got all sorts of new vectors of attack. Think about not only ChatGPT putting a query in and getting amazing information, but now you have deep fakes. You can create any images, any videos. You could even create audio. This isn't an episode of Black Mirror or science fiction. Skip has a very real story about this. We had my, my chief uh, information security officer, my CISO, called me about a month ago and he said, Skip, I just got a call from you. And uh, it was asking for me to do a few things for you um, and provide you know, my phone number and things like this. And it was in my voice. They had already started. And um, the impersonation is going to get crazy because I would predict in the not too distant future, I would not be able to tell the real Rob from the fake Rob. Unless I was in front of you and you and I were talking, what you and I right now could be deep faked with each other having a conversation, that is not out of the question in the near future. So you think about that and the capability to fool people, take over things, uh, get into networks, uh, steal personal data, um, it's endless. And then you also think about using AI for attack vectors. AI is changing many things, including how we program. Another big thing that you may have seen is that in, in the past, not, you know, just, just even recently, I think it was uh, the head of GitHub, and that's, that's a big repository a lot of companies use uh, for, for to store their information and, and uh, their code. He has already seen that 41% of the code on, on GitHub now is machine generated. It's not humans. He predicts in five years, there will be no code written by humans. Now, whether that's true or not, we'll have to see. However, it doesn't matter because now you're talking about using uh, machines to write code where they'll write it themselves. And guess what? It's just like I said earlier, if uh, there's technology available, it's going to be used for bad at the same time or prior, this can be used for good. And that means the bad guys can have their code writing machines blasting out AI code to hack, to find attack vectors, to learn about which cryptography you're using and where, 
to find out which data is sitting and where. It's coming fast and furious. And that's why we've got to move quickly on all of this because AI, the AI and quantum combo, it's going to get wild. And while that could do great things for humanity, the AI quantum combo on the hacking side is going to be very dangerous. We talked a little bit about what was the number that when you get to this amount of qubits, the RSA encryption was going to fall. There's something called Shor's algorithm, which predicts how hard it is to factor large prime numbers. Again, episode four has more information about Shor's algorithms and how it relates to quantum cryptography. The math, so this is for your, your dinner party conversation, Rob, when you get asked at, at that, that party and somebody says, hey, Rob, how many qubits do you need to crack Shor's algorithm? You go, oh, that's a great question. Uh, so the answer is two times the key length plus three. So if you're running RSA 2048, you would need 4,096 qubits plus three, 4,099, or let's say safely 4,100 qubits to break RSA 2048. However, there are a few problems here that people need to know about. And the reason I wanna state this is because we, I talk with uh, enterprise and government, uh, and in many cases, you'll have some people say, well, you know, we can just wait. You know, quantum's coming, 4,100 qubits, that's a giant quantum. We're nowhere near that. We'll just hang out and wait. Well, if that were the case, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. No, there's much more to the problem. To begin with, RSA 2048 is the ideal state today. The reality, however, is far less than that. First of all, not everybody that runs RSA 2048. In fact, I would even argue a lot of people, and maybe even more than half, don't run RSA for 2048. We had, a, we had a conversation, Rob, with a top three bank in the US. Okay, you could probably guess who the three are. A top three bank, their cryptographers told us they still run over 50% triple DES security. Triple DES was broken in the 90s. 50% of their cryptography is triple DES. So when people think of Q-Day, the day when a quantum attack will occur that will be successful, they think, oh, well, 4,100 Q-Days away. No, you don't need 4,100 to crack triple DES. Probably need, you know, a few hundred or maybe a thousand, you know, and you're into triple DES. So you just got into half of the bank with that, right? Half of their data is now exposed with that. The other thing is humans are very clever. We're not just waiting on one algorithm. China's put out multiple white papers trying to produce algorithms that are specifically designed in the white papers. They say, this is to crack RSA. We found a way we can do it with three or 400 qubits. Now, some are believing that paper, some are not believing that paper. So I'm not going to put judgment on it. But people are finding ways to combine classic and quantum to, to use entanglement across multiple chipsets and quantum computers, other ways that they can, they can crack encryption sooner, let alone the old encryption a lot of people are still running. You know, some people are still running RSA 1024, right? Or, you know, RSA started at 512, probably still some of that out there too. Oh, that's not good. I mean, if people are still running RSA 512, ouch. So it's going to be, it's not going to be a Q day, Rob. It's going to be a Q time period, right? Where things start falling and breaking because they weren't either weren't encrypted or had light encryption or bad encryption or old encryption. Um, and I fear the day if somebody gets efficient and finds a way that, that either you can, you can use Shores more efficiently or you bypass Shores and you can do it another way. And those things are all possibilities. So moving from cryptography here on Earth to the realm of satellites, 
I'm beginning to think of satellites as durable goods. You don't spend billions of dollars to put something into orbit and expect it to be obsolete in three or four years. These things are designed to live for 30 years or more in the harsh environment of space, you know, radiation, zero-degree temperatures. And we depend on them more and more. So a lot of that dependency, well, it's based around encryption. So is quantum a threat? You know, the addition to the banking that we just discussed, are we concerned about communications being broken with satellites? Yeah, I mean, concerned, I think, is an understatement. Um, so satellites, satellites are unbelievably exposed. Why is that? Because all of their communications are going right over the airwaves. In fact, Rob, you can go on YouTube and you search um, hack a satellite and you'll find a variety of YouTube videos on how to, with about $500 worth of hardware, you can hack a satellite signal. And guess what? They'll show you how they've decrypted some of that, those satellite signals. Now, good satellite technology and communications and security, it will still have decent encryption, right? But nonetheless, let's start with the fact that it's all exposed, just like cell towers. So anything going over the airways are exposed and anybody with listening devices can listen in and capture. However, if that data is encrypted, then of course they can store it. They can store the signal and say, I've got all this gibberish. And when they get a quantum computer, they'll decrypt that, right? So, but satellites are exposed. They're out in the wild, they're in the open. Right, just as computers used to take up whole rooms, they now fit inside our pockets. And those old computers, well, they've been replaced. But with satellites, they were designed to be in orbit for many years, out of reach. The problem with satellites is that you can't retrofit them, right? It's too expensive. So what's up there is up there. And you can launch satellites with new hardware, and you can put new things on those after a lot of testing. And you know how it is. You've got to go through you know, tons of testing. So what we did was we were actually able to, because of the way we create quantum channels, we were actually able to secure... Um, both a LEO, which is low Earth orbit, and a GEO, with this uh, geostationary orbit satellites, with quantum encryption, without installing anything on the satellite. And we, we basically created quantum channels up and down for both of those sets of birds with nothing out there on the endpoint. So let's take out the romance of quantum channels. I mean, it sounds so cool, but what does it really mean? Remember the NIST algorithms we talked about? So th th this lattice-based algorithm, so there's four of them. There's uh, Sabre, Kyber, McAleese, and Psych. Th there's four that NIST approved, and, or is going to approve. They're in the finalists. And we expect the first approval actually coming out pretty soon, but um, the of true approval, where it's, it's standardized. So, so what we do is we take those algorithms and we put it on top of the existing satellite encryption. So let's say the satellite's using standard TLS. TLS, or Transport Layer Security, is a cryptographic protocol, and it's designed to provide communication security over the internet. The most visible, of course, is HTTPS on your browser. TLS replaced Secure Socket Layer, or SSL, many years ago. What we do is we actually ride either in that TLS tunnel, or we wrap over it. And we take, we take the NIST algorithms, we deploy it in the channel, and it's on top of or inside of that existing encryption. And so that means that that now becomes what we call a quantum channel because it has that, that heavy duty, hard to crack, 
algorithm as security on top of what you are what they're already running. So it's actually double security. And that right now is the most advanced thing that can be done uh, to secure satellites. So what Skip's describing, a quantum channel, is something like IPsec, which encapsulates data in a secure tunnel within TLS. Yes, except algorithms running on top of it. Yep. Cool. So without going into orbit, we can create these quantum channels to secure the data. And so it is possible to have post-quantum encryption satellites, in our, and we're in production with that right now. So we're able to do it in, in, at this moment. And um, that, though, the, the idea being that if somebody now is listening in on that channel, they can still steal the channel. They can still take the data in. But when they are able to crack through whatever encryption was there before, let's say TLS, um, then they're going to write it, run right into quantum and it'll still be gibberish and they won't know why. And that's really it. You want to get quantum communications up and get all the existing birds secured. And then, of course, the new ones, it's easy too, right? It's even easier. Uh, and then, uh, then you've got, then you can start creating satellite mesh networks, where it's communications up there from from satellite to satellite, and you, and that'll take a little bit more work. But theoretically, you could create an entirely dark system that could not be uh, eavesdropped. Okay. Well, there are two pieces to every satellite communication. There's the ground station, which uploads the signal, and then there's the satellite itself, which downloads it back to Earth. Yeah, because on the channels that we ran for Leo and Geo, we we secured both both uplinks and downlinks. So up and down were secured with quantum channels. We tested all the way through, and the, 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 it was quantum resilient all the way through. Um, and the other side is, of course, you got to make sure that your ground station is secured too. You can't have be all happy about having you know satellite security, and then whoops, we forgot to secure the network on the ground. So so what you want to do is secure the ground network, secure the channels up and down. And then from, a, again, this is just communications. So from a communication standpoint, again, that's, that is the safest and best thing to do at this time. So Skip is qualifying low Earth orbit, which is about 12,000 miles above the Earth, and geosynchronous orbit, which is about 22,000 miles above the Earth. I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. Is it the latency? We, we just want to try them both. So, so it, we, we, and we figured we'd get Mio in the, in the, uh, in the middle, no pun intended, uh, so the idea was is that, so, so here's how we did it. We did this with Accenture, by the way. So Accenture was our partner on this. So at first we secured Starlink. So we did a channel up and down. Uh, and by the latency was, was um, I think the round trip time for us with our quantum channels on top of theirs was 131 milliseconds. And running their TLS alone was 85 milliseconds. So latency was nominal. And then we said, okay, we're going to get together with Intelsat and we want to also test on geosynchronous or geostationary because those are much further away. And we want to do the same thing. We did that too. So this is exciting. They were able to quantum encrypt data to and from a satellite in both low Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit and perhaps everything in between. But that isn't enough. Then we decided, well, that's not good enough. Let's do a failover. Let's do a scenario where we secure LEO and it fails. And we have to fail our, our cryptography up over to Geo. In other words, transfer to Geo. And we did that and it worked. And we did that with Accenture. So we did it more of testing to prove, because the other side of it is we felt like at QSecure, if we could, if we can encrypt communications for satellites, you know, at any level, whether Leo, Geo, Mio, all three, or any combination, 
then we could do anything down here on earth. And it's true. So we took the hardest use case. And so the use case was go to one, go to the other, fail from one to the other. And, you know, that that was enough to say, OK, that, that's good enough for now. So it seems that if you're just creating these quantum channels with satellites at a distance, well, maybe you should be able to do that here on Earth with the ground stations as well. Yeah, we, and, and we can. We have our, our, our system now. We can secure edge devices. Uh, you think of phones, you know, millions, hundred millions of phones, uh, laptops, um, uh, IoT, right? We can do it all the same way without putting anything on the endpoint. So let's say a telecom provider wants to secure 10 million phones. Fine. We'll create channels and the users won't even know those channels are created. They just have quantum encryption all of a sudden. Think about IoT. You can't put software on IoT devices. You know, I mean, you got, you know, 500, you know, video cameras in your, you know, office. How are you going to go to each one of those and put software? You're not. But if, for us, if they're based on any web application or they tie in at all, we can secure those without, without anything on the IoT side. Um, and then also on the server-to-server -server side, so that's where you're really looking at, say, more infrastructure behind firewalls, in data centers, then we just put proxies on each server and we secure channels that way as well. So with Hackasat 4, we're going to have a satellite at DEF CON this year that's in orbit. And it's going to draw a lot of attention to satellite communications and security in general. I'm wondering, though, if Skip has seen other people expressing interest in securing satellites. You know, not, not as much as we would like. And like any business, you're focused on your product or your service mainly, right? Satellites are no different. When you talk to satellite, a lot of anybody in the satellite infrastructure ecosystem, they're focused on first and foremost the product or service they're providing. Security, unfortunately, is an afterthought. And um, like when we we've talked with a, a variety of satellite companies, they say, "Well, this is really great, but you know, we got to do this launch, or we got to we got to provide this, or we're doing that." Um, so we'd like to see more of it. Uh, we'd like to see it more front and center. I think the federal government is really driving the way with, with NSM 10, which which they passed back uh, in, in December that all federal has to upgrade to quantum. So it's going to happen. The National Security Memo 10 sets forth a set of 90-day, 180-day, and one-year annual goals for all departments and agencies of the U.S. government to begin migrating to one of the four NIST-vetted post-quantum algorithms. This transition might seem fast, but Skip thinks it's not. Uh, we'd like it to happen faster because, you know, satellites, that's the high ground. You said it earlier. It's becoming unbelievably important. We got more satellites um, in space than any. We're more reliant. U.S. is more reliant on satellites than any country in the world. Um, it becomes a huge vulnerability, uh, and, and we can't leave it exposed. If we leave it exposed, somebody could take over the high ground and... You know, again, what satellite does, it does so much, all GPS, gone. That means you don't have ways, you don't have logistics. Uh, that means our, our military can't navigate. Um, communications, uh, you can't, you know, all, all of our, many many of our communications go down. Uh, we can't can't uh, communicate with each other. Of course, you know, we won't get our cable TV. Uh, that, that would be a shame. Uh, and so, you know, you think about all of the uh, logistics providers, all of the industries, that rely on satellites that almost you can't think of one that doesn't rely on satellites and um yet we are very very exposed and you know i think when originally when satellites were built you know no one worried about security because they were all the way up there right who cares it's way up there but that's not the point the point is the data is coming right down here so it doesn't matter what's up there so satellite is going to be an interesting battleground um there's a book 
called Winning Space, which I've advised any of your viewers to, to get. Um, it's a great book on all the countries and what they're doing with satellites and the problems and the issues. And, the, and it's, it's like, you know, it's a space race, really. So NSM-10 is for government agencies. But what about commercial satellites? The speed with which we're launching today is staggering. Or what Frank Pound in Episode 1 of Error Code called the democratization of space. As Skip pointed out, Starlink and all of the other commercial companies will also be affected by quantum computing. So it's not just nation-states that are capable of launching things today. No, private citizens can launch things as well. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I mean, they, you know, we do also have that scenario of, you know, getting too crowded up there, right? Just thousands of that. I mean, there are nations that are they're launching thousands of satellites, you know, a few times a year. I heard India is putting a ton up there. So because everybody wants that high ground and they also realize it's pretty efficient, right? You can deliver a lot of information by having those angles of attack up there. So, in a, you know, whether it's Leo, Mio or Geo, you know, each one has their advantages and disadvantages. But, you know, that's that's a great way to flow information around the world. Right. It's the only way. And it's way more efficient than fiber. Um, you know, so maybe it doesn't have as much bandwidth as fiber in some cases. But, you know, how many undersea cables are you going to lay and, you know, you could put a bunch of satellites up and, and do something similar. So I'm wondering if Skip can think of any recent examples of satellite attacks. Maybe they weren't successful, but anything that was sort of eye-opening to the industry. Well, a lot of data has been uh, stolen. Um, and maybe in some cases, uh, it hasn't really been revealed that it was satellite data. Uh, but we, we've seen a lot of data that could be satellite, may not be. It depends on where, you know, who had it, where it was coming from. There have been satellite attacks. There have been satellites that have been shut down. Uh, China blew up a satellite um, on purpose, and that was what we believe a kind of show of force to say that they could. Um, there are kinetic attacks that um, we expect might happen where people knock satellites out of orbit. Um, so it, it's, it hasn't happened to an extent where I would say that, you know, uh, it, you know it's hair on fire situation. It's more of preventative. Um, but... But, you know, since satellite, again, since all satellite data is exposed, um, what we aren't really taking into account is the steal now, decrypt later attacks, where, again, you can take that data in and you just turn on those servers and you're storing all that data. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden you can decrypt it later. Um, it, people, a lot of people don't know, too, that satellites share, like, like a lot of satellites are up there sharing data, uh, or I should say sharing space with different companies and different countries but where we have military satellites that are running on commercial satellites or military applications running on commercial satellites you have nation states two or three nations could be using the same satellite and there's not a lot of firewalls and things up there where people couldn't just cut across and take data off the bus from the other nation so there's a lot of potential um and the problem is it could be pretty catastrophic if they if if satellites went out so Number one, you know, if data is being taken, it's decrypted. That is a, a, a real risk for the future. Number two, they could actually disrupt, destroy, um, and and uh, you know, take over satellites. Um, and and uh, you know, once that's done, then you know, again, the infrastructure. Do we have the failover? Can we fail over to other satellites? It can be pretty debilitating. It's my understanding that most satellites don't really have memory. They're basically like routers, passing uploaded data up and down on different locations of the Earth. But that's starting to change. 
Yeah. I mean, the older ones don't, but the newer ones, they're putting up with more and more compute power. There's a lot of initiatives, many, many initiatives now by companies to put more compute power up in space. So think of high performance computing in space. It's difficult because, you know, there's a lot that goes into making these radiation hardened or they call it rad hard uh, and being able to handle um, all that they do. But 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 people are trying to um, get form factors and efficiencies because it is very efficient to process data, some data up there versus going up, bringing it down, sending it back up. So th that's in play now. So yeah, the satellites of the future all come with compute power. Um, yeah, I shouldn't say all, maybe small tiny CubeSats may not have that much, but but the bigger birds, oh yeah, they're loaded with compute power. And and because they look at it as a processing advantage, think of think of AWS in space. You know, um, think of the, the, a true cloud. It's funny we say cloud. cloud. Cloud today really means fiber in the ground, right? Uh, that's where you just cloud. But cloud tomorrow could really mean above the clouds, meaning that you're getting a lot of your data, um, you know, your, your inbounds and outbounds of data and your processing of data uh, up in space. So this isn't like a Commodore 64 in space. Skip's talking about more processing power, but still something short of having HPCs in orbit. That's where they're headed. Yeah, initially they're starting out with less than that because high performance, if you think of like uh, supercomputers, those are still way too big. I mean, you know, the Summit supercomputer, IBM Summit at Oak Ridge is the size of like two tennis courts. You know? So and I think it uses, uh, uses something like a thousand gallons of water an hour to cool it or something. So so not, not at that level, but you're starting to look at more and more compute power going up. Um, and being able to process more and more up in, in space. So it's what you're seeing now is sort of rack server size computers going up as efficient as can be, as tight as can be, no room for anything but exactly what's on there. There's no, you know, because they want to, they, they need the weight and everything to, to comply. But yeah, they're, just think about more compute power going up. And, and uh, as our chipsets get better, you know, think of like the difference between uh, an 8088 and, uh, and, you know, an NVIDIA, you know, newest gpu you know could be the same size but way different in power you know that that's kind of what's happening is you're going to send up the most powerful things you can fit on that bird for the weight and dimensions and you know the form factors well in orbit you'd certainly have cooling taken care of yeah <laughs> yeah you just you just leave the door open up there and i think you got plenty of plenty of cooling yeah you know hey it's energy efficient right you're not ruining the earth's environment by uh, using up all the energy Oh man, I could almost imagine we'll soon be doing an episode of Aerocode about crypto mining in orbit. Yeah, that's just what we need, Rob. I was hoping you'd say that because we all want that. Before that, though, there's a very real AI threat to be considered. I really think, you know, the, the, the biggest thing now is that I, I, you know, last time we talked, you and I talked, I, I want to say it was probably um, a year ago, was it, Rob? Or, yeah, or so. You know, the AI thing now, quantum is bad enough as a threat. Um, the AI thing is 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 even worse, and it's sooner. Um, and you know, as we think about protecting the data, you know, we we will we cannot stop ourselves as humans from trading, you know, privacy for convenience. Right? We'll never stop. Ask somebody to not use Waze. Don't go to Amazon. Don't visit websites, and don't have a phone or a computer. You know, it's just, it's never going to happen. You're going to have more of that in every single app device, even ChatGPT. Everything you put in there becomes part of the record and part of um, a, a hackable, 
ChatGPT already got hacked, by the way. Uh, so there you go. So now who knows what data people were searching that is now in the hands of, uh, you know, somebody build a, a profile on you or me, right? So it's already happened. But the, I, I would say we gotta, we've got to upgrade cryptography because it's time to get out of the 70s. And this is not, this upgrade is not just about quantum. This is about moving to things like active defense. Think about using AI now against AI. One of the reasons Skip keeps mentioning AI is that we've seen how rapidly it's come on the horizon and into the mainstream. Quantum, when it comes, may be similar. Right? We have to start that process. And, you know, um, cryptography and, and uh, cybersecurity sometimes are afterthoughts. There was a meme that you may have seen where it showed, um, it, it was a picture. So on one side, a picture, it said, uh, cryptographer, it said cybersecurity budget before hack. And it showed like three pennies. Cybersecurity budget after hack, like a billion pennies, right? It, and, and we don't want that. We don't want it to be like, well, don't worry about, it. oh, we got hacked, ransomware, uh, lost our brand because now everybody knows that we got hacked. We got to recover all that, uh, blah, blah. And then, okay, now let's put some money into fixing. Cybersecurity needs to be like hygiene. You got to start on it and get it done because uh, the AI piece and the quantum piece are gonna be here sooner than we imagine, And you don't wanna get caught behind that curve. Um, and it's only getting faster now. I, everybody's worried about it. So I would say, leave everybody with, go look at new cryptography, study what you have, find your vulnerabilities, your weakest links, start thinking about putting in the new algorithms and get into new methods of, of active, think about active cryptography, not passive old stuff. So, yeah, that's what I'd recommend. I'd really like to thank Skip Scanzeri for talking about quantum cryptography and the threat to satellites in orbit today. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvomosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I have new shows coming up, including more on quantum. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out. <laughs>